0: Our next scripture passage is from Exodus chapter 19, verses 7 through 25. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever." When Moses told the words of the Lord, when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud in the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Chapter 20, verses 18 to 21. Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you and the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was.
1: If you've ever seen a a good, humble father love his son, you've gotten a glimpse of God's love for his people. If you've ever seen a, a kind, faithful husband sacrificially love his wife, then you've gotten a glimpse of God's love for his people. If you've, if you've ever seen an eagle soar up in the sky out of trouble and over trouble into safety, you've gotten a glimpse of God's power at work for his people. This is what the first part of the book of Exodus has taught us. The God of the Bible is a God who loves his people. You can be sure of this. So if you're coming this morning with that question, it can be settled this morning. It's what God has shown us again and again and again in the Bible. In Exodus particularly, he's shown us this love by dramatically, providentially, powerfully rescuing his people so that he could have a relationship with them. This is what we saw last week, right? When he likened himself to an eagle, he swooped into Egypt. Exodus 19 says, like an eagle, and he set his people on his back and he brought them out to himself. Out of everything in the universe that God has made, there is one thing that God calls his treasured possession. What is it? It's his people. This is the message we heard last week from Verses 1 through 6 of Exodus 19, hopefully it's the message that you left encouraged by. God loves you, his people, with an everlasting, undying love. Through the cross, God has rescued his people to have a relationship with them. He has committed himself to you like a faithful husband. This is wonderful news to which we should all respond. We should all hear this message. We could take it as good news without reservation, and we should say, okay, I'm in. Whatever he says now, I'm in. This is, in fact, the way that Israel herself responded when we take up the rest of Exodus 19. Look there in verse 7 that David just read for us. So after the Lord had revealed all this to Moses, Moses heads back down to the mountain. Remember we saw last week that Moses is going to get some exercise in the rest of Exodus, up and down, up and down, up and down Mount Sinai. Look at verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the the Lord had commanded him. Verse 8. And the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So verses 3 through 6, God reveals his covenant love for his people. Verses 7 and 8, they respond. And what's their response? We're in. We're in. They've heard, they've seen God's covenant love towards them, and now they say they're committed to live in light of that love. Hopefully that's your response too. Now you'll notice... That this chapter in the book doesn't actually end in Exodus 19, verse 8, right? In this chapter alone, there are 17 more verses. There are 20-something more chapters. Why? I mean, haven't haven't we already established the relationship here, right? We likened this last week to a marriage ceremony. He says, will you? People say, I do. They're together. Well, sure we have, but evidently the Lord's not finished here. So, in these 17 more verses, having already established this relationship, the Lord now brings his people further up, further in to himself. So, in this chapter, the rest of this chapter, the Lord pulls back the curtain just a little bit so that people can behold him in a way that they've not yet encountered. That is, the Lord's going to reveal to his people his glory, his holiness. And this new revelation, it raises a, a new question, it raises a question for Israel, it raises a question for us here this morning. And the question is this: If the Lord were to take us a step further and reveal to us, reveal to us not only His absolute love, but also His absolute holiness, are you still in? You see, Exodus 19 is a test. This is how Moses explains it over in chapter 20. You see that? Chapter 20, verse 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of, the, the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So I realized that it's summer. You didn't come here this morning for a test. And I'm sorry for that, but Israel didn't show up expecting a test Either, but there they were, and here we are. So the text this morning comes to us to give us a test. And the test is this Is Israel ready to live in light of both God's love and His holiness? Are we? Are you? We know Israel is ready to live with and draw near to God and obey Him as long as He's a loving God. But are they willing to live with and draw near to him and obey him if they see him as a holy God? You know, in a sense, this is a, this is a huge question of our day, isn't it? Many, many people are willing to live with and delight in a God who reveals himself as loving and who demands that everybody be loving, right? But what if that same loving God also reveals himself as holy and demands holiness? This is the test of Exodus 19. If God God were truly to reveal himself to you in all his holiness, are you still in? You will fear such a holy God. We'll see that in just a minute. The question is, will you fear him rightly? Will you fear him in a way that runs from him or will you fear him in a way that draws near? This is the test of Sinai. All right, so how does this test unfold? There's a lot going on here to simplify things. I think that we can just reflect on this passage with three simple points. The first thing is this. The first thing we see is the announcement of a new plan. The announcement of a new plan. If you're note-taking type, there it is for you. The announcement of a new plan. Look there at the end of verse 8. It says there that Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So Moses brings the response of the people, that is, we're in, back up the mountain to the Lord. He says, Lord, your people say, I do. Right? Your bride says, I do. Okay, then, says the Lord. Well, here's what's going to happen. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set a limit for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So having heard their collective, I do, the Lord announces this new plan. And and there are two parts to this plan that the Lord is now laying out. The first is that the Lord is coming. And the second is, get ready. You see that there in the text? The Lord says, I'm coming, right? We've already established the fact that the Lord has rescued his people, not to be far off from them or to keep them far off from him, but to be close with them. And he says that he's going to make good on that now. That's what he's doing. And notice, to be with his people, what does the Lord have to do? He has to come down. He has to condescend. He reiterates this. Look at verse 9. He says, I am coming to you. Verse 11 says, the Lord will come down. So, Just like a king must do to be with his people, for the Lord to be with his people always requires a condescension, an accommodation. So that's what the Lord's doing. And why is he doing this? Well, look, foundationally, the Lord comes down for their faith so that they might believe. That's what he points out there in verse 9. Look there. He says, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. The Lord wants his people to witness the way that he communicates directly with Moses in order to validate Moses' ministry among them so that the people would believe Moses and trust God. You see that? They need to trust the mediator in order to have the correct faith. I think this is easy to overlook, but it's hugely important, right? All right, so imagine this. So what if this was just a normal day in in the desert wanderings and Moses disappeared for a couple of hours he took a walk up a mountain and he came back with some tablets to the people back into the camp saying claiming that he had heard from God What would that make Moses In a sense it would make him Muhammad or Joseph Smith He'd be a self-appointed prophet with a self-validated message. Is that what happens here, though? Not at all. You see, God is so arranging things so that the people themselves would see and hear that Moses is receiving this message directly from Yahweh himself. Moses is no self-appointed prophet. He is the one chosen by Yahweh to bring this message from heaven to earth, and the Lord says it's important for the people to see this so that they might believe the message of Moses forever, so that we might believe the message of Moses forever. God was coming down, this was the announcement, but his coming required something of the people. You see that? What was required of the people is the second thing they were to get ready. You see that? They were to get ready. This is the message I am coming, get ready. That's the message that God here is delivering. The point is that you cannot just waltz into the presence, just as you cannot just waltz into the presence of a king of any nation, so certainly you cannot just waltz into the presence of the king of all nations. The people of Israel had to prepare to meet God, and they had three days to do so. So, what did they need to do? They needed to consecrate and they needed to wash. Look there at verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. The people were to be consecrated. I'm assuming you haven't used that word much. Anybody use that word this week? Probably not. To consecrate something is to sanctify it. That is, you set it apart for a particular use. When you consecrate, when you sanctify something, it has a new purpose now. It's been newly purposed. And this was Israel. They were to be set apart now for holy use. Their purpose now was to meet with God, and they were to be set apart in order to do so. Part of this consecration was washing, so like a a bride putting on The pure garments of white to meet her husband, so Israel was to get ready to meet her groom. And notice also, Moses wasn't just to prepare a people, was he? He was also to prepare a place. You see that there in verse 12 and on. Moses was to to set limits all around, it says. It's almost like he's staking, hammering down no trespassing signs all around the mountain of God. And if you're paying attention, this is a little bit strange, right? you're thinking, I thought that the Lord was preparing to meet with the people, to be with them, to bring the people into his very presence. And the answer is yes, of course, but of course you can't just do that flippantly. Do you feel this tension in Exodus 19? Draw close, keep your distance, come here, keep your distance. Come here, stay there. If you feel that tension of Exodus 19, if you don't quite like it, I think that's exactly right. Because this tension you're feeling, Nexus 19, is the reality created by our sin. We were created in holiness, in purity, to live with, to be near God. And yet here we are having to do our best to consecrate and wash ourselves in order to try to be in His presence, knowing full well that we can never wash ourselves sufficiently to actually go into God's presence. So at Sinai, even as God's people prepare to meet their God, there's this barrier constructed to keep them at an appropriate, safe distance. You can feel it. Even here, something's missing, right? It's sad, actually, as you're reading Exodus 19. How good would it be for this not to be the case, for God's people to be able to just draw near to their God, to be with him like they were meant to be, fully safe with him, fully consecrated? It's not how it is, at least at this time. The Lord was coming down. So what was the action item of the people? They were to get ready, consecrate themselves. And I think it's worth pausing to note that the reality and application for Israel here in Exodus 19, it's the same for our lives here and now. The same announcement of Exodus 19 has been made to us in our generation here and now. That is, the Lord has said, I am coming down again. So get ready. You're going to be an eyewitness to the glory of God. So get ready. I should ask, are you ready to meet the Lord? What would it mean to be ready to meet the Lord? Just from what we've seen here, it means that if you're a sinner, you have to be consecrated to meet with him. You have to be washed. You have to be sufficiently sanctified. Are you? What would even, what would even be sufficient to do that for you? So think about your own life. You know your sin. Think about it. What is powerful enough to wash you clean enough so that you could enter the presence of God? What are you you washing with? What are you trying to purify yourself with? Is it your good works? Is it your morality? Is it your penance? The reality is that we will all meet the Lord. And if we want to survive, we have to be cleansed beforehand. And we have no power to do that. So what do we do? On what basis can you and I draw near to God? The book of Hebrews is an amazing commentary on the book of Exodus, on Exodus 19 in particular. There, the book of Hebrews it, it knows this dilemma that we're feeling here and now, and it offers one solitary, sufficient answer for washing. You know what it is? It's the blood of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, do you just hear that? We have what to enter the holy place? confidence to enter the holy place? (laughs) What? That's foreign news to Exodus 19, isn't it? How in the world do we have this confidence? We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened to us uh, through the curtain, that is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What is the ticket for approaching a holy God? It is perfect, pure washing with perfect, pure blood. That is the only way. In Exodus 19, Israel had a mediator, didn't they? The man Moses But as great as Moses was, he couldn't actually cleanse the people of God, could he? But praise God, the reality is that in Jesus, we have a new mediator, a better mediator. Jesus has come to prepare us, to make us holy so that we can meet with God. And how does he do this? Does he just come and declare us holy? No. What does he do? He comes and he sheds his own blood that that we might be sprinkled, that we might be washed with it. His own perfect, holy, atoning blood. This is the point of the cross. That's what he's done. So church, we must be clear on this. A Christian, someone who draws near to God and dwells with him with his favor, a Christian is not a person who freely approaches God because they're a relatively moral person. And a Christian is not even someone who holds certain theologically correct convictions. Think about this, neither your morality nor your theology is pure enough to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. You need something better. More specifically, you need someone better than you. And that is Christ. A Christian is very simply a sinner who has been sanctified, who has been set apart because they, by faith, have been washed in the holy, redeeming, atoning blood of Christ. So think about you here this morning. What is your sin? What's the thing that would keep you from entering the presence of God? Is it your sexual immorality? Is it your adultery? Is it your greed? Is it your drunkenness? Is it you're a liar? Is it on the outside you're washed, pure, and clean, but on the inside you're a terrible person and you know it? What hope could you possibly have to be clean? Paul speaks of this exactly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He lists all these things, and you know what he says? He says, Such were some of you Christians. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Get ready. That's the message of the Bible. And how do you get ready? You come to Christ by faith to be sanctified. Are you ready to meet the Lord? Every single one of us will meet the Lord. In Exodus 19, it's as if Israel just goes first. And this leads to a second part of the message. So Moses gets his instructions. Moses heads down the mountain, descends once again. He consecrates the people. He gives them these instructions for washing. They do that. Once again, they say by their actions, they say, we're in. We're going to do this. So they prepare, and they wait for the third day. And then it comes, and this brings us to a second thing, which is the terror of a new revelation. The terror of a new revelation. We see this in verses 16 through 20. The Lord said, get ready for the third day. In verse 16, the third day comes. And just as he said, God comes down. Look there in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. Okay, so the the people of Israel, they've been brought out of the camp. And they stand there at the base of the mountain. And what's their experience? What's their demeanor here at this point? The text says there in verse 16, they tremble. They tremble. In fact, the only thing shaking more violently than the people of God is the, is the ground under their feet. You see that in verse 18? Have you ever been in an earthquake? Anybody, anybody here ever been in an earthquake? Maybe you're here in D.C. a few years ago. I've only experienced one in Ecuador one time. Uh, we were sitting there eating lunch. Something, I just, and something just happened all of a sudden. I didn't know what was happening. I just knew that it was very uh, unnerving what was happening. The very ground under my, underneath my feet felt like it was going to give way. It's hard to think of something more settling than the very ground under your feet shaking. And here Israel stands. The whole mountain, it says, trembled greatly. Every one of their senses, you can imagine, are just flashing alarm bells, right? So their feet are shaking, their their noses, their their eyes burning with the smoke that's coming down. Their ears are pounding. There's this deafening sound, and the sound is thunder. But then this other sound comes. this mysterious sound like a trumpet coming down from heaven. It's this royal announcement. It's the celebration of the arrival. The king has come. That's what the trumpets are announcing. So the people of Israel, they lift their eyes, look up to the mountain They look up to, from where they're being called, and it's just a cosmic storm as they look up. Think about it. There's no delay between the flash of lightning and the, and the roar of thunder that they hear. The storm hovers directly over their head. It's ominous. It's threatening. You probably know the feeling of being directly under threat of lightning. So you're caught in a storm, right? All you want to do is get away. This is actually what led Martin Luther to become a monk. When he, he was traveling on the road, he got caught in a thunderstorm. He cries out praise to the saints. I'll become a monk if you save me from this. And the Lord saved him. And he became a monk and eventually the reformer. I don't know if you saw it this past week. It was during a baseball game between the Rangers and the twins. It was just a normal game. Watching the highlights, regular highlights. The pitcher's about to enter his windup, his windup, and all of a sudden, wham! Gotcha! Exactly. <laughs> Lightning hits right above the stadium. Immediate thunder claps, and what happens? The field, <laughs> the field clears out immediately. Right? Players, umpires, nobody's looking for Nobody's looking to anyone for instruction. They don't care. They're just getting out. Right? It's like the storm was claiming the field as its own with a direct lightning strike right to the middle of it. So it is here at Sinai, except there's no break in the lightning and the thunder. It's constant. It's incessant. The mountain, it says, begins to be enveloped in smoke. And why? Because verse 18 says, the Lord had descended on it in fire. The people look up and they see the mountain burning. Later on in Exodus, it paints the picture this way. Chapter 24 says, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of a mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. This is why the scriptures refer to God as a consuming fire. His presence is so holy that it consumes that which is not holy. You know, it's not uncommon for people, maybe even you, maybe you balk at this idea of God being a consuming fire. The idea of God being dangerous, of God being unsafe, of him consuming that which is not fit to be in his presence. It's proof, people say, that God is intolerant. God can't actually be loving if he's a consuming fire. And that's one way to think of it, but I think another way to think of it is that God is actually what he claims to be, which is holy. So I would wager that most of us here have been sunburned before. Anybody been sunburned? Yep, more recently. I don't actually tan. I just burn, and then I go back, and then I burn again. When you get sunburned, my guess is that you don't get upset with the sun, right, Like, like a moral argument against the sun, right? You don't accuse the sun of being intolerant against you. And that's because the sun is what it is. The sun is a white hot fire. It's a fire from, from the right distance provides these wonderful gifts of heat and light. It gives life. It illuminates everything. Without the sun, we'd be blind. We'd be lifeless on our planet. But that doesn't mean you could just waltz up to the surface of the sun and live. And that's not because the sun is mean. It's because the sun in order to give life and to give the beauty that it does is devastatingly hot and dangerous it is a life giving consuming fire so it is with god holy is very simply what god is god's holiness is not mean it's real The same holiness that gives life and beauty is the same holiness that consumes sin. And so when God's far-off holiness comes down, this is what the people experience. His, His imminence, his drawing near is revealing his transcendence. It's this tension that they feel at Sinai, and they see fire. And from this fire comes smoke and a cloud, which the text says is now wrapping itself around the mountain like a hurricane. And as terrifying as this is, it seems to be that it's actually the cloud that protects the people from kind of shielding them from the full glory of God. Because the glory of God must be concealed even as it's revealed to sinful people. We see the same phenomenon, this covering of smoke over and over again when God invites his people into his presence. So think of Isaiah chapter 6. What, is, what fills the house, the temple of the Lord, as Isaiah is brought into the God's presence? It's this mysterious smoke that conceals even as it reveals. All the way at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 15, the sanctuary is filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Think even of the transfiguration, the mount of transfiguration, Jesus, right? The time when Jesus' glory was, just for a moment, revealed. What happened there? The text says that a bright cloud guarded his disciples from seeing too much of his glory. The clouds that surround God's presence, they show his divine glory, but they also hide it. This is what's happening here at Sinai. And things only get more intense. The sound of the trumpet gets louder and louder. The text says the cloud is getting lower, the fire near, the trembling is more violent. Yahweh, Israel's God, has descended onto this mountain. And so paradoxically, the closer Yahweh gets the more clearly the people are seeing this vast moral distance that still separates them from God. See that? You see this if you look over in chapter 20. Look there in verse 18. Here's their reaction. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we'll listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. So this is the picture we have here now at Sinai. So the the terror of experiencing God's holiness has moved the people far off, away from God. They keep their distance, and they feel their need for mercy. So notice, do the people cry out for help? Do they cry out for mercy? Absolutely they do. They cry out to whom, though? do they call out to God? They cry out not to God, but to Moses. You see that there in 20 verse 19? Moses, we don't want to die. Don't let him speak to us. So at Sinai, the people of God experienced the holiness of God in a whole new way. And the And the sight, it, it utterly terrifies them. It fills them with such fear. Not only do they want out of reach of his presence, they want out of reach of his voice. So look at chapter 20, verse 21. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So what is our scene at the end of Exodus 19 and 20? We have a people far off and a mediator drawing near. Now think, is this any different from the beginning of the chapter? It hardly seems like it, right? In the end, after all this, how many additional Israelites go up to meet with the Lord? One. Look in chapter 19, verse 24. He says, okay, go get Aaron, consecrate him, he'll come up to me as a priest, right? So think about this. Instead of actually worshiping before God, Israel is represented before God. Israel has a priest, Aaron, and they have a prophet, Moses. But the people themselves are no closer to Yahweh at the end than they were at the beginning. So it seems to me that in Exodus 19, we have a picture, we have a vision of the way that God intends to relate to his people, right? He wants to have a kingdom of priests, a nation full of holy people who draw near to him without reservation. That's the vision we have. But do we have its fulfillment? No. And this brings us to a third thing, and that is the need for a new covenant. We have a covenant here in Exodus 19, but we leave Exodus 19 with needing a brand new one. Because of sin, God's people need a God ordained way of relating to God that allows them to freely draw near to His holy presence, allows them to dwell with Him, allows them to properly worship God. And Sinai is not it. So, what we know from Exodus, you know how long Israel spends at Mount Sinai? About a year. The rest of the book of Exodus takes place here. And not to spoil it, get you too hyped up, but do you know what the rest of the book entails here at Mount Sinai? A whole lot of law. A whole lot of law. There's a pattern that develops from here on out at Mount Sinai. That is, God gives the law, people sin, sin begets more law, God gives more law, more sin begets more law. Over and over and over the pattern goes, so much so that Sinai becomes synonymous with the law. Sinai is the law. To live at Sinai is to live under the law. That's the point. So in part, the message of this book is that as good and perfect as the law of God is, which it is, we need something better. We cannot live at Mount Sinai and also dwell directly in the presence of God We cannot live under law and also live under grace. We cannot truly live under the old covenant. We need a new one. We need a new way of life. We need a new way of relating to a holy God. We need a new mountain, as it were, to approach God. And the question is, will God give that? Will God give us a new mountain? Will God give us a new covenant? Will he give us a new and effective way of approaching this holy God so that we don't have to pause, we don't have to fear? Jump back to the book of Hebrews, now in chapter 12. Listen to the way the author of Hebrews explains the reality in which the believer now lives. He's already explained that we have a new mediator. Now, Hebrews chapter 12, he wants to explain something different. As we approach God, how are we to envision this? Hebrews 12, 18. For you, Christian... You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. What's that remind you of? What's it talking about? Sinai. You have not come to this, verse 19, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. Again, Sinai, verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The author of Hebrews, he says, listen, I know the mountain that you used to live on, that terrifying mountain called the law, that mountain that, which gave you God's requirements without God's grace. And guess what? Here's the good news. That's not the mountain on which you approach God. That's not the mountain on which you live. Look at verse 22, Hebrews. You have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the people, it's the place of God. It's the paradise held out to God's people as the place of final worship and rest. And that, Hebrews says, is where you live now. Verse 22, you have not come to Mount Zion, or excuse me, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And what is this mountain like? He says, into innumerable angels in festal gathering. That is, we come to a mountain of God in which angels are dressed for a party. That's where we come. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That is God's people dwelling with God just like they're supposed to. Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you see what's happening here in the Bible? This is so wonderful. In the Bible, the place where God dwells is pictured as a mountain. And there are two mountains on offer in the scriptures on which you can choose to approach God. One is old, one is new. One is utterly untouchable, one is completely acceptable. And what's the difference? One, one mountain, this old mountain is covered with landmines of the law. One is covered with the blood of the lamb. One is covered with law, one is covered with grace. One mountain cries out for justice. One cries that justice has been satisfied. One is a call that we make ourselves righteous in order to come on it. One invites us to come on it because the righteous one is already there. The difference in the two mountains is that Jesus has gone onto the new mountain, shed his blood, made it righteous for whoever would come to it by faith. One commentator says it like this. He says, one mountain was dark and stormy. The other is a city of bright and shining glory joy. One mountain was a place of fear and danger. The other is a place of peace and safety. On the one mountain, the angels blaze with fire and blasted with noise. On the other, they form a welcoming party for a celebration. One mountain was designed to keep people away. The other was designed to draw them close. Mount Sinai is terrifying to the people of God, and it should be terrifying for you. Have you ever tried to scale Mount Sinai? tiptoeing ever so delicately, just trying to perfectly obey God. Have you ever tried to do that? It's depressing. It's condemning. It's damning because it's impossible. And what the scripture says is, is it holds out that old mountain to you and it says, yeah, look at that. Now let me, let me invite you around that mountain to something new. There's a second mountain, a mountain called Zion. Where lives the one who perfectly lived out the law and who shed his blood for the purification for anybody who would draw near to himself? Think about this. At Zion, the perfect mediator went up before us and he never came down again. We just go to him. We just go to him. The application of this, I think, is fairly straightforward. And that is that every single one of us here this morning, you must decide where you would rather meet God. Mount Sinai or Mount Zion. It's up to you. You come with faith in yourself, that's Sinai. Or you come with faith in Christ. One pastor, I thought, gave a great illustration of this from his own experience. I'll tell his story. He says, Several years ago, some family and I attempted to climb Mount Wyndham, one of Colorado's 14ers. You can tell it's not my story because of that. He says we were within the top, uh, within sight of the top, when a thunderstorm moved in on us. The only place we could go was to lie between some of the boulders and pray that we wouldn't be struck by lightning. We knew that many people have died that way, so it was a scary experience. Well, a couple of years ago, he says, my wife and I were in another thunderstorm on top of Williams Mountain, east of Flagstaff, but this time we weren't afraid. Instead, we were reveling in the awesome display of God's power in the storm. The difference? We were inside the lookout tower, which is grounded with lightning rods. Although the lightning was crackling around us and the thunder was booming, we thoroughly enjoyed the experience. If you are at Mount Sinai, you are in grave danger before the Holy God because you're exposed to His judgment. But if you are on Mount uh, Mount Zion, you are secure because the blood of Jesus has covered your sins. You can revel in God's holy presence without fear of His judgment. The question is where are you living? What is your Christian life like? Is it fearful of God's judgment? Is your life tiptoeing around God's impossible expectations of you? Is it keeping a safe distance from God? Is Is it a continual cloud of guilt and condemnation that just follows you around? Is it God as your judge scorning at you? Those are symptoms of living at Sinai. And the Bible says there's a better way. There's a place. In a mountain that you are free to scale because of God's acceptance of you in Christ. There's a place where your obedience is a joy. There's a place where condemnation dies and doesn't hover over you like a cloud. There's a place where God is your Father. Listen, it's it's possible that your road to the Lord took you to Mount Sinai to behold his glory, to behold his standard. So maybe you grew up in a place where God was held out to you in that way, without grace, without mercy, but only law. And I would just encourage you, that was an accurate picture in some way, but it was to show you death and not life. You can move on from there to a different mountain, a new way of living. It's possible that you've been through Mount Sinai and you never left. Or it's possible that you live on Mount Zion, but you keep on going back to Sinai. The Bible would encourage you to leave it behind. Aren't you tired of living under the law? On Mount Zion, through faith in Christ, you can boldly, though reverently, approach God as one who is without Sin. This is justification. We're going to read about this in our men's group coming up on Thursday. This is the freedom of justification that you can't get anywhere else. God declares you to be not guilty, to be righteous as one without sin. And that's the invitation to approach God. If you are in Christ, you are consecrated, you are sanctified. You are righteous. You are not under the law, but under grace. If you have trusted in Jesus' blood, you have not come to the terrors of the law, but to the joys of a new covenant. So, how do you live in light of both God's love and His holiness? You come to Christ. And this is precisely what brings us to the Lord's Supper this morning, every morning that we come together each week. You, likely like me, need to be reminded that this is a feast of Zion, not Sinai. This is a feast of grace, not law. Here is where we come with empty hands, proclaiming the emptiness of our own righteousness and the fullness of our righteousness according to Christ. Here at the supper, we proclaim once again the fact that we are great sinners. We have no business approaching this holy God. And yet, praise be to God, we have a great and righteous Savior who told us we must approach God. And we can through his righteousness. So here's where we come again and again. When you come forward in the Lord's Supper, that's what you're proclaiming boldly again and again. That the man on the cross told you to come. That's what you're proclaiming again and again. Will you live in light of God's love and holiness? Will then come to Christ. This is the supper. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're in Christ by faith, then we invite you to join us in celebrating in the Lord's Supper now. So even if you're not a church member here, if you're a baptized part of another local church who preaches the same gospel that you've heard here this morning, you should come forward and celebrate with us. If you're here this morning and you know yourself not to be a Christian, (laughs) I can't imagine a place where I'd rather you be this morning. Thank you for being here. And I would just encourage you to use this time that we come for the Lord's Supper, not to come forward yourself because that would be celebrating something that's not true of you, at least not yet, but to contemplate the gospel that you've heard, the good news that you can approach God through faith in Christ. If you're a Christian here this morning, professing to be a Christian, but you're holding on to secret sin, well, this is a time of repentance for you. Don't let it go to waste. You know, Before we come, one thing we are invited to do, one of the great privileges is that we can be honest with ourselves about the remaining indwelling sin that we have. We don't come as perfect people. We come proclaiming and professing our faith in a perfect savior, but we come and we wanna be honest with the sin that still remains. So we do this through a time of prayer of confession. I'll give you just a minute or so to pray on your own. You can search your own heart, ask the Lord to help you see any places of your heart that may be uh, still fighting sin, confess those things and then I'll lead us in a prayer of confession before we come together. So let's go to the Lord in prayer now.